All right, Chabosai, let us uh, let us begin. So I'm going to begin by thanking our sponsors of today's shir, to thank our Talmud Torah sponsors for the month of E.R. Yona and Shashi Ehrenfeld for dedicating all the Shurman's Rushos this month in loving memory of Yona's grandfather, Yosef Ben Shmuel Aaron. To thank Mark Karstadt for dedicating the Shurim this month in memory of his mother, Chana Bas Shragai. To thank our Week of Learning sponsors, the Meyerowitz family, and his Chosev Rafur Shalima for Su Shulamistova Bas Mindel, and the Grossman family as a Zuchoser for Shlima from Miriam Chana Bas Ida. We thank all of our sponsors and hope that in the merit of our Talmud Torah, all of the Neshamas will have an Aliyah and all those who require a Refuah should have one together with Kol Chole Yisrael. And also with that, let us begin. We have a really exciting and beautiful daf ahead of us today. Today's daf is Daf Tess. And we are picking up Emir Hashem on the bottom, actually at the two dots. On Ches Amid Bey. So we'll say, going back a little bit to the Mishnah. A little bit back to the Mishnah. So we'll say, let's, let's begin. So the Mishnah said as follows, quoting by the two dots, Lishkas Parhejan. So remember again, we would sequester the Kohen Gadol to a, to a chamber, right? So we, we've, we've spent the first eight blot of this, of this Mesechta really focusing on the notion and concept of sequestering. Now we're going back a little bit more to the mechanics, what happens. So remember again, the first thing the Mishnah told me is they sequestered him to a chamber in the Beis HaMikdash, and that chamber was named the Parhedron Chamber. So they would take him to the Parhedron Chamber. So it says the Gimara, Lishkas Parhedron, Tan Rabbi Huda, Tan Rabbi Huda, Vichy Lishkas Parhedron Haisa, was it actually called the Lishkas Parhedron? Was that the name of it? Vahalo Lishkas Balvati Haisa. It was named the Lishkas Balvati. They're both say, now what's the difference in these names? If you take a look at Rashi, Rashi says Parhedron is Pekidi Hamelech. Parhedron actually is a name, not of a person, but of a position. So Parhedron is an officer of the king. Balvati, on the other hand, Rashi says over here, Lashon Sorin, is a Lashon of noblemen. Noblemen. So the chamber, the chamber of, which is what we call Lishkas Parhedron, that means the chamber of the king's officers. But Balvati means the king's nobleman. So Balvati is a much more exalted statement than Parhedron. So the Gemara says, why would we call the Kohen Gadol's chamber Lishkas Parhedron? After all, again, we should call it Lishkas Balvati, nobleman. To which the Gemara says, you're right. In the beginning, in fact, they used to call it, call it Lishkas Balvati, the chamber of the nobleman. But then something happened. But say this is incredible. listen to this. But then something happened. And we'll expound on this a bit more on Daftas. During the second temple era, during the second Beis HaMikdash, the office of the Kahuna Gidola was sold to the highest bidder. And as a result, you had a number of people who were totally unfit for office yet occupied that office. So interestingly enough, what ended up happening, there was an incredible amount of turnover. And I was like, why was there turnover? I guess you could call it early retirement, right? How so? Because they would go into the Kodesh HaKadoshim on Yom Kippur and they would not come out. They would not come out. So there was an incredible amount of turnover. Now something very interesting happened. As soon as, as soon as the Kohen Gadol would come into power, what was the first order of business? He would remodel the Lishkas Balvati, right? He want that's, that's my chamber. I'm the Kohen Gadol. He would remodel the Lishkas Balvati. So every 12 months, there would be a huge remodeling of the Lishkas Balvati. 
But in, so if you take a look at Rashi, Rashi says over here, Mitok shenostin mamon lekuhuna, mitok shakohani bayeshini ha yomdin ayidim mamon shenostin alkuna gidola lemalchus beis chashmonai. So we'll say we'll discuss this in greater depth in the next half. But remember again, second temple era. Remember again, you had at least for some period of that the Hasmonean kings, right? After the Hanukkah story, the chashmonai who were kohanim took over the kuhuna. Well, they, didn't take over. they were Kohanim, but they also took over the Molucha. They also took over the monarchy. Machlokes Rambam and Ramban. As to whether or not that was the right move or not. But either way, there unfortunately was a downward spiral. The Kuhnigidola was sold off to the highest bidder. And therefore Rashi says, And they would not live out the year. So every coin God would come into power would redo the Lishkas Balvati. He would redo it. So it became a little bit like a joke. So what happened? They made a joke that the, the Kohanim Gidolim turned over like the Parhedrin. said the Parhedrin are the appointed officials of the king. So they would serve a year and there would be turnover. And there would be turnover. So what used to be called the Lishkas Balvati, which was again the Lishka, the, the chamber of the noblemen, became known as the Lishkas Parhedrin. Right, the parajin meaning the, the servants of the king, right, the attendants of the king, whose positions often turned over every year, just like the Kohanim Gidolim turned over every year. So the Gemara says, so amazingly enough, again, in the beginning, it was called Lishkas Balvati, the chamber of the noblemen, but then when there was such high turnover amongst the Kohanim Gidolim, because clearly they were unfit for the office, it became known simply as the Lishkas Parhedrin, the attendants of the king, who turn over each and every year. So the Gemara goes by to Tanan Hasam. So we'll say, the Gemara just now brings another example of the, the use of this word, Parhedrin. So Tanan Hasam, Hanachtumin lo chayv osen chacham lahafish ala chumas maiser v'chalav. So we'll say, listen to this. Nachtumin are bakers. These, these are commercial bakers, right? Or bakers, you know, bakers who provide bread to the general populace. So we'll say, what happens if you have a baker who himself is a chavre tam but he purchases flour from an amaaret. So, Rabos, remember again, in general, if you, pr- if you purchase produce from an amaaret, what's the status of that produce? What's the status? Demai. So what do you have to do with demai? You have to retie it. So there's a special takana by the bakers that halacha lamaisa, when they, when they purchase demai flour, all they have to do is separate out shumas meiser, and chala. They don't have to separate all the other tithes. So Bishlam and Shuma Gidolalo, I understand why the bakers don't have to separate out what we call Shuma Gidolalo. We'll say Shuma Gidolalo is Shuma, the portion for the coin. Why? Because we'll say this is very interesting. Who was the one who introduced the legislation regarding Demai? It was none other than Yochanan Kohen Gadol, who we will discuss. So Yochanan Kohen Gadol during the Second Temple era goes ahead and kind of looks at what's going on in general Cloud Yisrael. He's the one who saw, Yochanan Kohen Gadol was the one who saw that general Amaratsim, general unlearned people, were only separating out Truma Gidola, which is the primary tithe. That's all they were separating out. They weren't separating out any other tithes. See, he came along and said, therefore, if you purchase produce from an Amaaretz, you have to retithe it. But interestingly enough, 
that never required one to take Truma Gidola. Why not? Because Truma Gidola was always being taken. So I understand why the bakers don't have to take Truma Gidola. So Umaiseri, Shonu Maiser Aninamin, Lo, Hamotzi Mechavar Lavaraya. Furthermore, you also can't obligate a person to, ta- to separate out Maiserishon and Maiser Ani from their demai as well. Why not, Rabosai? Because interestingly enough, remember, Maiserishon goes to the Levi. Maiser Ani goes to the pauper. We'll say, if, if that, that obligation, remember, when you purchase produce from an Amaaretz, it's a suffix. Did the Amaaretz tithe it or not? So we'll say, in general, the halacha says, if you want to extract money from someone, the burden of proof rests upon who? The extractor. So, therefore, we'll say, if I purchase produce from an Amaaretz, maybe he tithed, maybe he didn't tithe it. So, therefore, again, halacha lemaisa, if the Ani wants to claim that Maiser Ani wasn't separated, the burden of proof rests upon the Ani. If the Levi wants to prove that Maiserishan wasn't separated from it, the burden of proof rests upon the Ani. Now, we'll say, I know what you're thinking. You could say, again, well, by Truma, and Truma Gidola, Truma Gidola, remember again, there was no problem because remember, even and even even Amiyaharets, even even ignorant people were in fact taking Truma Gidola. But why not just obligate the baker to separate out Meiser Shani and eat in Yerushalayim? Because we'll say, what's the beauty of Meiser Shani? What's the beauty of it? It's yours, right? Remember again, Meiser Shani is yours. The only caveat is you have to go ahead and eat it in Yerushalayim. So why not just obligate them to do that? Amra'ula, because we'll say, listen to this, because the bakers had a problem. What was the problem of the bakers? Amra'ula, mitoch shaparhedrin halalu choftin osan kol yud beis chodesh. So we'll say, listen to this. The Ula said, because the Parhedrin, we'll say, who are the Parhedrin? They are the officers of the king. The officers of the king would often force the bakers to sell at a significant discount. They would force the bakers to keep their price low. Therefore, low atrechinu rabbanon. Therefore, the rabbis would not, the rabbis did not compel the nachtum and the bakers to separate out Maiser Shani and take it to Yerushalayim. So, we'll say, so pretty much what's happening over here is the rabbis had compassion on the bakers because the bakers had a difficult life because it was price fixing. Who, who did the price fixing? It was the king's officials. They forced the bakers to keep the prices low. Therefore, when the bakers bought flour from an Amaaretz, technically, again, that flour is demai. So again, they don't have to separate out Truma Gidola. Why? Because, in, because the, because the Amir already separated out Shuma Gidola. I, why not obligate them to separate out Maiser um, Shani and take it to Yerushalayim? Because they had compassion. They had compassion upon the bakers. Why is this being brought down over here? Only because the Brice uses the word Parhedrin. Right? So what do you see from this context over here? That Parhedrin are officers of the king. They're officers of the king. My parhedrin, what are parhedrin? Parsi, parhedrin are parsi, and again, last Rashi and that parsi, pikidi hamelach, officers of the king. Sefer will say to come full circle, to come full circle, the reason this was called Lishkas parhedrin, that was not its original name. Originally, it was called Lishkas balvati, the chamber of the nobleman, reflecting the exalted and lofty level of the position of the Kahuna Gidola. 
But in the Bayishin, in the Second Temple era, when the position of the Kunagido was often sold to the highest bidder, and the chamber was remade year after year, because Kohanim Gidolna would die every single Yom Kippur because they were unfit for the position, it became like a joke. So to call it the Lishkas Balvati, the chamber of the nobleman, would have been inappropriate. Instead, they called it Lishkas Parhedrin. This is the chamber of the king's workers, right? The king's appointees. Those were positions that changed every year, just like the Kahuna Gidolna changed every year. Incredible. We'll say the Gemara goes weiter. We'll say very profound pasuk. Might or very profound piece. Might dechsev yiras Hashem tosif yomim v'shanim v'shanot. Sorry, tosif yomim. What does he mean when it says fear of Hashem will add days? Ushnos rishon tekatzrena, but the years of the wicked will be truncated. So what does that mean? Yiras Hashem tosif yomim. When it says fear of Hashem will add days, ze mikdash rishon. This refers to the first base on Mikdash. Let's listen to this. Sha'amad Arba Meos Ve'eser Shanim. The first base on Mikdash stood for 410 years. That was the duration of the Bayes Rishon. V'lo shimshu bo ele yudches kohanim gidolim. Isn't this incredible? 410 years of the Bayes Rishon. And in 410 years, only 18 kohanim gidolim. Only 18 kohanim gidolim. Listen to this. But then it says the years of the wicked will be truncated. This refers to the second base of Mikdash. Both say the second base of Mikdash stood for 10 years longer, right? First base of Mikdash, 410 years. Second base of Mikdash, 420 years. And get ready for this. More than 300 Kohanim. Do you hear this? First base of Mikdash. 410 years, 18 Kohanim Gedolim. Second Beis HaMikdash, 420 years, more than 300 Kohanim Gedolim. Now it gets worse, it gets worse. Now both say, remember again, you have to remove from that, remember Shimon HaTzadik, remember Shimon HaTzadik, both say, who was Mishiyare Anshikin Eses HaGidolo, right? He was a Tzadik. See, he was a Kohen Gadol during the Second Temple era for more than 40 years. Ushmonim Shishimi Shiochanan Kohen Gadol. And remember again, 80 years that Yochanan Kohen Gadol, who was also a great tzaddik, was Kohen Gadol. Eser Shishimi Shishma Ben Pachi, 10 years that Yishma Ben Pachi was the Kohen Gadol. So we'll say, so remember again, you already have 130 years from those three. 130 years from those three. Va'amri Yud Alev Shishimi Shabalaza Ben Kharsum. And some say there was another 11 years. That Allah ben Kharsim was the Kohen Gadol. So both say, so remember again, you could have between 130 and 141 years made up of four righteous Kohanim Gedolim. Which I will say tells you what? Mikan go and do the math. Call Echad when you do the math, you begin to see an incredibly tragic turnover rate. That Kohanim Gedolim did not live out the year. There are multiple Kohanim Gedolim who served for less than a year. What happened? What happened was Yom Kippur happened, right? What happened ultimately, again, is that the Kohen Gadol would enter into the Kodesh HaKadosh and was unfit and therefore would die. Say, which tells you something, say, think about this just a moment. Is, isn't, isn't, isn't it incredible? Right? Think about this. Okay, so you have money, Bar Hashem, and you, want, you always wanted to be the Kohen Gadol. Fantastic. Say, so buy the position. It will say, if I did that, what would you do Yom Kippur morning? Call in sick. Call, simple, call in sick. I'm going to take this as a personal day, right? People do this on Shabbos all the time, right? I'm going to take it as a personal day. Right? I'm, going to, I'm, going to call in, I'm going to call in sick, call in sick, right? Also, isn't it incredible? What does it tell you? 
it shows you the power of gaiva. It shows you, I both say, how overwhelming the midah of arrogance is. That's when a person possesses gaiva, when a person possesses arrogance, it allows you to live with a sense of cognitive dissonance. It allows you to divorce yourself from reality. It allows you to live in such a state of delusion. And I both say arrogance manifests itself in a variety of ways. Arrogance, some people have arrogance because of their money. Some people are arrogant just because they think the world revolves around them. Everything is about them. But when you do that, when you live life with gaiva, gaiva blinds you to anything and everything, even the obvious. You're coming on the heels. Last year's Queen Gadol died, the year before he died, the year before he died, the year before he died, the, you get the point, right? They're dying one after the other. And it's not the shot that, oh, notice the stress of the job. Some jobs are stressful. I do like the Gemara says, the, the Navi says, sorry, that Shmuel HaNavi was zucking Baba Yom. Shmuel HaNavi was old. But you know how old Shmuel HaNavi was when he died? He was 52 years old, 52 years old when he died. So there are jobs like leading Kalal Yisrael that age people prematurely. So you could see maybe it was the Kuna Gidola also. They may well say, well, everybody's dying on the same day. I and mean, you're after the same Avoda. Come on. Hence the power of Gaiva. Gaiva, which I will say is why conversely, we place so much emphasis on the Midah of Anava, of humbling ourselves. Because again, if you don't have Anava, you have Gaiva. It's like the only place you could be of in life is your kitchen. There's no of outside of your kitchen. You're either a Bal Gaiva or you're a Bal Anava. That's the way it works in life. It's an incredible Gemara. Why was Shiloh destroyed? I will say again. So Shiloh, remember, was the site of the Mishkan, where the Mishkan stood for 369 years. So why was Shiloh destroyed? Because I will say there are two Averis happening by Shiloh. Or really, it doesn't mean two Averis in Shiloh. It means two Averis in Cloud Yisrael occurring during that time. What were the two Averis? Gilearayos and Bizayon Kachim. There was immorality and general um, disrespect of sacrifices, of sacrificial items, of karbanos. Where do we see this? We'll say, Gilarayas Tachsiv, Ve'eli Zakin Ma'od, Eli. We'll remember again, Eli was the Kohen Gadol in Shiloh. This is in the beginning of Sefer Shmuel. Eli was, Eli was the Kohen Gadol in, in, uh, in Shiloh. And what happens? He was very old. V'shama Eis Asher Yasun Banav L'chol Yisrael. And remember again, Eli's sons, Chafni and Pinchas, unfortunately abused their power. And Eli heard everything that Chafni and Pinchas were doing. And Eli heard everything that his sons Chafni and Pinchas were doing. All the Ra. And he also heard that literally translated, they slept with the women at the Oal Moed, at the Mishkan. And we'll say, even though, again, the Gemara says that, no, no, it doesn't literally mean they slept with the women. And whoever says that they committed an act of immorality is mistaken. Rather, what did they do? So we'll say, interestingly enough, if it, so the Pasuk says, the Pasuk says that Chafni and Pinchas went ahead and went ahead and slept with the women. So even if you go with the opinion that it's not literal, they didn't sleep with the women, so what do they do, I will say? When women came after childbirth to go ahead and offer up their karbonos, Chafni and Pinchas took their time. They didn't offer it up. And as a result, women often had to stay over in Shiloh. So remember again, I will say, bringing a karbon 
is the last step in a woman's tara after childbirth, which allows her then to be with her husband. The fact that ultimately they kept women overnight in Shiloh and didn't allow them to go back to their husbands was treated as an act of immorality. So whether it's that Chafni and Pinchas literally engaged in immorality, or as that Chafni and Pinchas unfortunately delayed the offering of Karbanos and kept women from their husband, it's treated like an act of immorality. So you see from here that Shiloh was destroyed ultimately again because of immorality. Next. Avon Kachim, I'm sorry, Bizarin Kachim. What does it mean that Halakha Lamaisa again? They disrespected. They disrespected Kachim. So the Gemara says, sorry, I'm just trying to figure this out here. They disrespected Kachim. So the Gemara says, So we'll say here, let me explain to this to you. Well, let's read it. Even before the chilev. Remember again, the chilev is a sacrificial fat that's offered up on the Mizbeach. See, even before the chilev was offered, so an attendant of the Kohanim, a servant of Chafni and Pinchas, would come along, and he would say to the person who was offering the karban, Give meat for the coin to roast, and he won't take cooked meat, raw meat, what would end up happening over here is as follows. The aloha is that the coin gets a portion of certain karbanos. But when does the coin get his portion? Only after the chilev has been offered. Right? Once the chilev has been offered, then the coin gets his portion. What would happen? Chafni and Pinchas would send their attendant to go ahead and take the sacrificial piece or sacrificial parts, Quranic parts, before the chilev was offered. And the Jews would say to the attendant, listen, let us just offer up the chilev. And then the Kohen could take whatever he wants. But they were so greedy. The Gemara says, Let's just offer up the chilev. And then the Kohen, they could take whatever they want. No. Give me the meat now. And if you don't give me what I want, I'm going to take it anyway. So we'll say, interestingly enough, they're, remember, they were so greedy that they couldn't even wait for the chilev to be offered. So the Jews were saying, you could take whatever you want. Let's just go through the proper sacrificial channels. Let's do this correctly. But they were so profoundly greedy that they could not wait to take their Kohanic portion until after the chilev was. And I want to point out, it's all the same thing, right? So we'll say this, it's, it's, it's all, what you begin to see is, both by the Kana Gudol and by Yesheni and by Shiloh, it's all the same gaiva. See, I will say, gaiva, when a person is arrogant, what happens? Everything becomes about me. So therefore, when a person is arrogant, that leads to Arias, right? Why does it lead to Arias? Why does it lead to Arias? It leads to Arias because I will say, what's Arias? What's immorality? Immorality is saying, life is all about my pleasure. Life is all about my pleasure. That, 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 that's what it's about. Whatever is going to make me feel good is necessary, important, and should be permitted. Same thing again with the meat. Why can't you just wait two minutes? Just, just, just let them offer up the chilev. Because Gaiva says, I should have what I want, and I should have it now. So it's incredible. It's the same thing by the Kohanim of the Bayesheni. It's the same thing with Chafni and Pinchas. Just a profound Gaiva, a profound egocentricity that is a derivative of unchecked 
arrogance. Profoundly tragic. Mikdash Rishon Mipnei Machar. These are, these are, I, I forgot. I meant to send out on the WhatsApp chat last night that incredible, riveting, overwhelming, transformative, cathartic Gemara's. But I forgot, I forgot. So it says the Gemara as follows, Mikdash Rishon Mipnei Macharov. Now we'll say, why was the first base HaMikdash destroyed? Mipnei Gimel Dvarm Shoiba, because of three Averos which were committed in the base HaMikdash. Or when I say committed in the Beis meaning committed societally. What were they? Avodazara, Gile Arayas, Shrikos Damim. Idolatry, immorality, and bloodshed. So we'll say the three Cardinal sins, the three cardinal averus, three cardinal averus. The Gemara says, "Now let's analyze." So Avodah Where do we see Avodah Zarah? So literally, means means the couch was too short to stretch out on. What does that mean? My katzar matzah mishtarei. I'm Rabbi Yochanan. Katzar matzah zeh hamishtarei alav shnei reyim keechad. The couch was too narrow. Was too short. For two friends to lay down on. We'll say, who are the two friends? The Ribbono Shalolam and the Avodazara, the idol that King Menashe introduced into the Beis Hamikdash. So we'll say, the idea being was that the Jews introduced idolatry and therefore there wasn't enough room, right? There wasn't enough, not, not, not enough theological room for Akkadish Baruchu as well as the Avodazara. Vamasecha, Sarah, Kihis Kanis. So the Gemara says, "Am Rabbi Shlomo Rachmani, Kimati Rabbi Yonasan, Lahaykra." Whenever Rabbi Yonasan would come to this pasuk, Bachi, he would cry. Am Raman Dechsivbe, the God about who it said, Kones Kaneid Mehayom, the one who's supposed to be referring to Har Sinai. That literally he gathers mounds of water. Naasislo Masechat Sara, an idol became his rival. So we'll say it's tragic because we'll say what happened. Again, this in general is always fascinating. The concept of idolatry, especially historically when there is such a clear divine manifestation. Whether again it's earlier by Amsuf or whether it's by Bayes Rishon, but again this was the Avodazara. So we'll say, interestingly enough, I want to point out that often throughout our history, when we had challenges with idolatry, so it wasn't necessarily that idolatry meant the rejection of HaKadosh Baruch Hu in favor for another God. But in fact, what happened more often than not was what was something that's called Shituf. Shituf means, I believe in HaKadosh Baruch Hu, but what? But what? I believe in other things as well. And you see this often. Rarely was there was like an active repudiation of the Ribbono Shal Olam in favor of another deity. Instead, there was the worship of another deity in conjunction with the Ribbono Shal Olam. So the Gemara, which I will say, by the way, is to, interestingly enough, it's, I've always thought about this, not our topic, but it's interesting to think about like kind of which is worse. Which, which, which is worse to a certain degree? Is it worse? And I know this sounds strange. It's all bad. I want to go on record as saying, I've the Zara, bad, bad, bad. Right? So I'll say, but again, Interestingly enough, is Shituf worse? Is it worse to worship HaKadosh Baruch Hu in conjunction with another idol? Or is it worse just to totally reject HaKadosh Baruch Hu and embrace the idol? Uh, you know, I, I think it's interesting thing to... Pop, not, again, it's all bad, but I think it's a fascinating idea that sometimes you see in the Nevi'im where HaKadosh Baruch Hu gets so upset at the notion of Shituf. Why? Because they're both sides. In life, you have to choose a side. Right, you have you have to choose a side. You have you have to stand for something. I say this is like the big thing, right? We live in a society where now, you know, 
everything is geared to make everyone happy, right? Everything is supposed to be a big tent. Well, if you're everything for everyone, then in reality, you're nothing for no one, right? So you have to stand for something. You have to stand for something. So it's interesting that sometimes the concept of shituf, where I, I believe in everything. I believe in Chashmoruch, I believe in this. So to a certain degree, that's worse than being an Oved Avodazara. Because at least if I'm an Oved Avodazara, I what? I what? I, I believe in this, right? This is my God, right? That, that, that chair, that, that's the God. Okay, at least, at least you're a chair guy. At least you're a chair guy. At least you know your principled individual believes in something. Masha'inki, you believe in this, you believe in this, you believe in this, you believe in this. What do you believe in? What are, what, 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 what are you? Just, just something interesting to ponder. Anyway, the Gemara says as follows. Gila Rayas. So now we've established that there was a Zorah in the bias Rishon. Gila Rayas, immorality, dixiv, Vayomar Hashem, this is a very profound Gemara. Vayomar Hashem. So the Gemara, we're quoting the Pasuk. Quoting the Pasuk from Yeshayahu. Vayomar Hashem, Ya'an kigafu benos Zion. So literally, again, I will say the daughters of Zion have become very arrogant. Vatilachna nituyos garen. They walk with an outstretched neck. We'll define each of the pieces of this Pasuk. Umishakros enayim. Literally means with wandering or really with lying eyes. Haloch v'tafof tilachna. They walk like they're floating. Uberagleyen te'akasno. And they anger with their feet. Yan kigafu benosion. So let's, let's analyze. Let's break apart the Pasuk. What does it mean? Yan kigafu benosion. Literally again, it means they became arrogant. But if you translate it literally, it means they became very tall. Gavoa. The daughters of Tzion became very tall. So what would happen? A tall woman would walk next to a shorter woman. Now what do you do when a tall person walks next to a shorter person? It amplifies their height. So a taller woman who wanted to catch the attention of men would walk next to someone who was shorter in order that she should catch more attention. What the Gemara is describing over here is that unfortunately the Jewish women, there was a fundamental lack of tzniyos, there was a fundamental lack of modesty. But not just a lack of modesty, as we're going to see almost like, almost like an active immorality. What happens? And they walked with an outstretched neck. So that means to walk with an erect posture, which again, to walk in a more gaivadic way. What does it mean again with lying eyes? They would put on an incredible amount of eye makeup. We'll say all again to intentionally attract the attention of men. They would walk like they were floating. They would walk again. We'll say literally means the heel by the big toe. They would take very small steps again in order to be noticed. And what does it mean again? With their feet, they would anger. This is very interesting. They would take myrrh and balsam. And they would put it in their shoes. And when they would come next to the young Jewish men, they would stamp on their shoes. And what they would do is they would release the perfume. The perfume of the myrrh and the balsam. Umatizos alehen umachnisen b'hem yitzhara ka'aras ka'aras or ba'aras b'kas. Ka'aras b'kas. I'll say what would happen. So purposely, when they would go ahead and walk by the young Jewish men, they would stamp on their feet, release the perfume, and entice the men. And literally, it says that the yitzhara would enter into the men like the venom of a snake. So also you see over here, ultimately again, the notion of the notion of 
the notion of Gibarayos, immorality. Which will say something very interesting, by the way. If you notice, the immorality being described over here, we'll say the Pasik doesn't describe anything that actually happened, right? It, it, what, but what does it describe? It describes ultimately, again, a, a behavior in a way that's meant to entice. Now, we'll say, now I, I want to go on record and say something very important. The Pasik over here, right, is laying the blame on the women. Right, it's saying that the women acted. So remember again, a woman is not allowed to act in an immodest fashion, but but on the same token, a man is obligated to guard his eyes and to watch himself. It's it's always easy to blame that uh, she, she, she enticed. So again, it's it's a dual responsibility. A woman has an obligation. A Jewish woman has an obligation to to act in a modest fashion that is not provocative. But if a man becomes enticed, he can't blame that on the woman. A man also has an obligation to watch what he looks at, to watch his behaviors, to guard a certain sense of morality. But again, what's fascinating about this, Abosa, is that Pasik itself is not, is not describing any type of act of immorality, which tells Abosa something absolutely amazing, that immorality and morality, it's not just about a sexual act. Morality and immorality is about, about how a society conducts itself, how people dress, what people look at, how people generally behave. And there was a fundamental breakdown in all of these areas, which although the Pasuk doesn't say it, must have led ultimately to active immorality as well. And what about murder? Also, this one's pretty explicit, right? Menashe shed much blood until Yushayim was filled with blood from one end to the next. So both said the first phase Hamikdash is destroyed because of the commission of the three cardinal sins. immorality, bloodshed, and idolatry. So say this is quite fascinating. But what about the second base Hamikdash? So second base Hamikdash, everybody's learning Torah, everybody's doing mitzvahs. Everybody's performing acts of chesed. So interesting enough, you see, as corrupt as the Kahuna Gidola was, apparently the general spiritual state of affairs was pretty okay. It was pretty okay. So there's no They're learning Torah, doing chesed. So what's going on? Here we go. I will say because there was sinaschina, baseless hatred, which tells you, which tells us that sinaschina, baseless hatred, is as terrible as the three cardinal sins. Isn't that absolutely incredible? First base, Hamikdash is destroyed because sinah, because Second base, Hamikdash, they're learning Torah. They're doing chesed. They're performing mitzvahs. So why was the Beis Hamikdash destroyed? Sinas chinam. Now I will say just one word about this. We're all familiar with this. This is not a chiddush. Not a chiddush to us. So I will say it's always. It's always. I will say very interesting. Sinas chinam means baseless hatred. So very often, how do we understand that? People just hated each other. And I will say that never happens, right? When people hate each other, it's always for what? There's always a reason. Now, it might be a bad reason, or it might be a really like, like an illegitimate reason, but there's no such thing as p- baseless hatred. No such thing as people just hating themselves for no reason. So we'll say, interestingly enough, so it's brought down in some of the svarim, that the notion of sinas chinam means as follows. Chinam, chinam, 
really means without responsibility. So what's sinas chinam? Sinas chinam means where there's sina, there's animosity, and no one takes responsibility to fix the frayed relationships. See, they both say, animosity always happens, right? Fallouts always happen. People, relationships are always in a state of disrepair. But at the end of the day, generally what happens with frayed relationships is someone's got to take the ownership to repair it. Now, by the way, repairing it can mean different things. Repairing it might mean, you know what? We can't be friends <laughs> or, 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 or we have to have a distance, but that's okay. That, that, that's also a form of repair. I don't let it dangle. You stay there. I'll stay here. You should be masliach. I should be masliach, but it's not healthy for us to interact. But again, sinna means that there's sinna and no one takes responsibility to try to fix it. No one takes responsibility to try to go ahead and figure out what to do with this. That's when society disintegrates. When no one takes responsibility over the discord. When no one, and we'll say, by the way, you, you, well, I'm not going to get political now. Right, but, but again, you, you see this in societies. You see the disintegration of African society. When there's discord, there's problems, and no one wants to take ownership, or no one wants to assign ownership of the problems that occur, there leads to a fundamental unraveling of the fabric of society. More to say on that, but I'll say that at a different time. So what's the Yimar says? Rishayim hayu, baruchu. Ultimately, interestingly enough, by Bayashani, they were Rishayim, they were Rishayim, but interestingly enough, they believed in HaKadosh Baruch Hu. So we'll say, remember again, as opposed to Bayez Rishon, where there was a problem with Avodah Zarah, there was no problem with Avodah Zarah during Bayashani. We'll say, isn't this fascinating? Theologically, they were pretty, they were pretty okay. There, there was really no idolatry during the Second Temple era. I mean, in the Beis HaMikdosh, they were Rishayim. They were bad, but they believe in Akhlash Baruch Hu. So we'll say, well, now we're going to see there's a discussion exactly about what this phrase applies to. This phrase of Rishayim Hayu, they were, they were wicked, but they believed in Akhlash Baruch Hu. Is that a reference to first temple or second temple? So the Gemara says, perhaps it refers to Mikdash Rishon. So the Pasik says, literally again, right, their, their leaders, their leaders judged with bribery, their Kohanim threw a price, Paskind Halacha, their prophets prophesied with money, but yet they depended on HaKadosh Baruch Hu to say nothing bad will happen to us because the Rebano Shal Olam is in our midst. Therefore, HaKadosh Baruch Hu brought about three judgments corresponding to the three Averos. Zion will become a plowed field. Yerushalayim will become ruins. And Harabais will turn into a forest. High places will turn into a forest. But is that true in the first place of Mikdash? There was no Sinaschim. So what the way the Gemara makes it sound like is, Bayes Rishon, Gilarayos, Avodazara, Shvichostamim. Bayes Shemi, Sinaschim, baseless hatred. Is that true? That in Bayes Rishon there was no baseless hatred? The Pasuk says, Megure al Kharaf Hayu, Esami, Lachin Sipok al Yarach. So, this pasuk refers to people who dine with each other. 
And yet they stab each other with the swords of their tongue. So we'll say, so the Navi here is describing people who exhibit outward friendship to one another, but then stab each other in the back. So we'll say, is there not a greater, is that not the greatest example of Sinas Chilam? Right, they're both saying that's the most disingenuous thing. You pretend like you're someone's friend, but then when they're not listening or they're not around, you talk about them, you stab them in the back, to which the Gemara, so th- this is bias Rishon, which would seem to indicate to us that there was a problem with, there was a problem with Sinas Chilam bias Rishon as well, to which the Gemara says, no, 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 ultimately, again, that was actually talking about the leaders. In bias Rishon, there was a problem with Sinas Chilam, but who's Sinas Chilam? Amongst the leadership. Amongst the leadership. It was not a problem in the populace, just the leadership. We'll say really fascinating. So apparently in Bayashani, in Second Temple era, the Sinaschinam ultimately again was amongst the general populace. In Bayas Rishon, the Sinaschinam was limited to the leadership. So what is incredible? Rabbi Yochanan say in the first place Hamikdash, where their sin was revealed, right? To both say because remember when the sin was revealed because the, the Navi tells us what their averus were of we saw this, this is the psukim, right? The psukim, remember again by bias we shown how do we know what they did wrong? The Navi tells us Gilarayos shvichos damim avodazara because their sin was revealed. Ultimately, again, Niskala Kitsam. The end of their Golos was revealed as well. Right? The Bosei Babayas Rishon were told that when the Beis Hamikdash was destroyed, the diaspora would last for 70 years. However, Achronim Shalom Niskala Avonam, but by the Bayas Shani, where their sin was not revealed. The Bosei, remember, how do we know that the Bayas Shani was, was destroyed because of Sinas? How do we know that? How do we know that? Yuma Daf Tesem Beis, because the Gemara tells us. The Gemara tells us Masora. But the Pasuk doesn't reveal it. Therefore, Lonis Galakitsam. Therefore, both say again, Gula remains unrevealed as well. So the sin was unrevealed, and therefore again, Gula remains unrevealed. So both say, this is actually pretty incredible. So Rashi, that, that's the way I read it to you, is the Pashib Shat. Rashi understands this a little bit differently. Rashi says, Sheneskala Avonam. Rashi says over here, Shalo Hayu Mechasen Pishayem. Neskalu kitsam, the femalos the bavel, the femalos the bavel, shivim shana, achronim shon neskala avonim, bene mikdash sheni rishon hebeseses. We'll say, Rashi understands it as follows. In the first base hamikdash era, the Jews sinned openly and publicly. Therefore, because they sinned openly and publicly, their redemption is open and public as well. Which Baruch says explicitly, you'll be redeemed in 70 years. In the second base hamikdash era, we sinned privately. Because we sinned privately, therefore what? The Geula, quote-unquote, remains private and unrevealed as well. So this is actually quite fascinating. What's a greater level, so to speak, to sin publicly or privately? So I'll say, this is pretty incredible. So the Gemara seems to say, sinning publicly is better than sinning privately. Now, now, now listen to the end of this sentence very carefully. Right? So I'll say, what this means is as follows. When a person sins publicly, at least what they're saying is, I don't care what anyone thinks. I don't care about God. I don't care about people. When a person sins privately, then what they're saying is, I care about people. I just don't care about God. Now, I will say, I want to tell you something interesting. There, there, there's, there's 
a counter argument to that as well. The counter argument, the Gemara says, for example, we're actually going to see this Gemara. The Gemara said, well, we started in Sechaz Brachas. The Gemara says, if a person has a taiva, a person has a desire that he cannot go ahead and overcome, what should he do? Yilbashchorim, wear black clo- clothing, go somewhere that no one knows you, and do what you have to do. Now, both say, now the Gemara is not encouraging that, but rather what the Gemara is saying is that sometimes, if you can't overcome particularly Yitzhahara, do damage control. And damage control means if you have to sin, sin, but sin in a way in which you limit the fallout. One of the ways in which you limit the fallout is go somewhere no one knows you. So just want to point out, but from a theological perspective, the way the Gemara is understanding it over here is in bias reshown, in bias reshown, they didn't care about anything. They didn't care about anything. So fine, you, put the co- you didn't put the covet of man above the covet of God. That's a mylaw. That's a mylaw. In second temple era, they equated, right? They, equa- they, they put the covet of man above the covet of God. So they would sit in front of God, but they wouldn't sit in front of their fellow man. So the Gemara says, we'll, say, no, we'll have to stop over. We'll pick up Amir Hashem with this bias. We'll say incredible Gemaras that continue Amir Hashem into tomorrow as well. So tomorrow, more incredible Gemara bias. Yushan 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 bias